Guys, I just found out about a great way that we can make some money. Come on, Jamie. Is this another one of your get-rich-quick schemes? Yeah, I'm still cleaning troll shit off my boots from the last one of your little adventures. No, no, it's nothing like that. I just found out that we could get a thousand gold pieces apiece for a dragon egg. A thousand gold pieces apiece? That could set us up for life. Sorry, I only accept payment in gold. Hey, wait a minute. Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my draconic co-host, I guess? <laughs> I'm Jack Olander, a local peasant that specializes in kicking down walls. And I'm Chelsea, a conjurer in hiding. But I can see you right here. Well, I hide my skills of oh, conjuring. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, guys, this week we are going to be talking about a 2011 movie called Dawn of the Dragon Slayer. This film was directed by Anne K. Black, who we will remember from a few weeks ago. She was the director of Mythica. It stars Richard McWilliams, Nicola Posner, also a Mythica alumni, Philip Brody, Ian Cullen, and Maggie Daniels. Now, before we talk too much about the movie, I think Chelsea's probably ready to go with a summary of the film. That's right. Your never-ending source for summaries of fantasy movies here. So, Dawn of the Dragon Slayer starts out with a simple story of <laughs> boy meets dragon yeah i was gonna um, boy's father is killed by dragon you're boy... stealing my thunder <laughs> boy pledges revenge against dragon do you want to do the summary no no <laughs> why don't you come up before the class and read your summary <laughs> oh boy i haven't had to do this in a few months <laughs> share your thoughts don't be greedy <laughs> that part i'm good at um yeah, so boy meets dragon, boy's father killed by dragon, boy embarks on an epic journey to seek vengeance against said dragon. See, you know. yours is much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's all original, never heard before. He convinces his father to go against the dragon because the eggs are worth a thousand gold each. And a thousand gold each? I gotta go, guys. <laughs> Oh, that could set you up for life. Apparently, according to them, they're they're uh, simple shepherds, so that must be a lot of money to them. Um, it's good gold for a shite shoveler, too. So the dragon sees them coming from, you know, a, a thousand miles away, and he just, or she, just swoops down and just burninates uh his father to a crisp right in front of will i hate the main when that character. happens and so will doesn't know what to do with his life except for 
Go seek out Baron Sterling as his father bade him to do before he died uh, to become a bondsman who would eventually become a knight. So he wants to go train with the Baron Sterling, who's a nearby low-level lord. Yeah, I'd say minor lord. Minor lord. I mean, a baron. Yeah. And Will brings with him... Unless his first name is Baron. (laughs) No, it's not. It's Robert. Oh, right. Will brings with him to Sterling's lands um, a sealed envelope, and he has no idea what it entails, but we learn that Baron Sterling promised Will's father for a service he provided years before a section of his southern holding. So the, he, Will could be a landowner, but the Baron doesn't tell him what it is. And he just basically allows Will to become another one of his servants. Shite Shoveler is his specific job title. Yeah. So the Baron doesn't teach him how to become a knight like he promised. And Will is basically an indentured servant or potentially even a slave because he's not even paid. And he's getting pretty upset about it. He's about to leave once the Baron goes out of town on a trip to the Knight Council. And he leaves Will behind. That's a council of knights, not a council held at night. (laughs) Yeah. Important distinction. But the Baron's learned daughter, Kate... Sterling agrees to teach Will in the ways of knightlyhood, knighthood, and courtly love. Moolala. <laughs> and we get a montage of her teaching him how to dance, how to bow to a lady, how to ride a horse, how to fight, and they're using books as well because she knows how to read and write, and so she teaches him some of the ancient language, how to read and write as well. Reading and writing is one of the one of the many uh, advantages that Kate has over Will as a protagonist for this film. Yes, and we see them growing closer together. And as you're watching this, you're realizing that most of the story is about their relationship. <laughs> and so this is this movie you realize is mainly a love story wrapped in a revenge plot. <laughs> My favorite kind. <laughs> So, at one point, there are a few convoluted sections of the movie after this point where Will and Kate keep leaving the manor and coming back and agreeing to pledge themselves to one another because they actually admit that they love each other at one point, and then going back on that and getting upset with one another, and then the dragon shows up while the Baron is out of town and Will fights it and breaks the Baron's sword, and he's kind of disgraced a little bit after that. But when he brings Kate back after she ran away, the Baron is kind of like, okay, you're in my good graces again. <laughs> the real wishy-washy family. I know. I mean, what happens after that? I mean, it gets kind of convoluted. Uh, Will kills the dragon, uh, makes out with Kate, grabs her butt, the end. Yeah! <laughs> pretty much it (laughs) i guess i could have done the summary of this movie (laughs) (laughs) there is another character called rogan who's kind of like a corrupt knight who's hounding will throughout the whole movie kind of belittling him and tries to kill him near the end but will gets the better of him and uses some of rogan's underhanded tactics against him mostly backstabbing 
Yeah. And so uh, that's how he's able to win against Rogan and win the hand of Kate. And he comes back with one of the dragon's eggs so that he and Kate can live together and get married and provide for themselves by selling the egg. Uh, and that's basically the end there, I think. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers everything that matters about Dawn of the Dragon Slayer the, in terms of the plot. So why don't we head into the Delve? Welcome to the Delve, the part of the podcast where we venture deep into the lore, themes, scenes, and other features of Dawn of the Dragon Slayer, a name of a movie so generic that I have to keep looking at my notes to remember the actual title of the film. <laughs> well, there are other, as Jack found out, there are other movies with a very similar title, so it was kind of hard to find. <laughs> no, it was the same movie with a title spelled a different way. Right. All right, guys. Well, I mean, why don't we talk about the price of dragon eggs in um, England, I guess, where this takes place? It's like, yeah, I think it's Scotland and England. Yeah, because uh, there were all of the uh, features that they showed there looked like they were historical sites in England. Definitely. Yes, I thought I had recognized it from many other fantasy films, or at least a few other low-budget ones. And then I realized the movie I was thinking about was this movie <laughs> that I had seen before and forgotten all the details of. Oh, wow. Well, that's fine. <laughs> it's completely understandable. You're, you could still be right. I mean, it looked like um, a site that I recognize from other films, too. Yeah, at the beginning, I was like, isn't this... The same place that they filmed that movie where the knight fights a dragon on the beach. And then at the end of the film, we see that exact thing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this looks very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it was from that same movie. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, what do you guys think? A thousand gold pieces. You're going to live the rest of your life off of that. Is that, does this make sense? I mean, if you're, imagine yourself. A lowly highland shite shoveler, or sheep shepherd, either way. Both jobs that I think have about equal pay rates. A lot of overlap, too, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. I'm sure there is. I, I think that Will is a young man between 16 and 18 years of age. And so he probably doesn't understand how far a thousand gold really goes. Wow, that's a seething indictment of his father, who's the one who says that that would set them up for life. No, Will says it. Does he? I thought yeah. it was the dad. No, it's It Will. seemed like something that the dad would say, but he didn't have a lot of lines. Yeah, the dad just looked kind of bewildered the whole time. Oh, uh, okay. He's like humoring Will. Yeah. He's okay. trying to go with his son, who really wants to go after this dragon. He's like, okay, maybe we'll make a weekend of it, have some good father-son time. And then he gets fucking roasted. Yeah. <laughs> Reminded me of my own childhood. I was just thinking about how much a single gold coin would be worth, right? Okay. these days, I'm thinking like, all right, what could like feasibly to a shepherd family set you up for life let's say a million dollars let's say to this rural family uh, they can live off a million dollars for life 
that means that each of the thousand gold coins converts roughly to 10,000 gold, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, $10,000. So how do you spend a single gold coin? Yeah. Is there change? Like, are there lower quantities of coins like coppers and silvers? Or are you just stuck with these $10,000 bills in your pocket? Seems difficult to spend. Yeah, well, at another point in the movie, we saw that dickhead, the knight Rogan, flick a look what looked like a silver coin at Will uh, as a way to disgrace him after he lost a, a match they had together. So uh, I think there are different types of coins in the realm. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It was stamped with some official seal, too. Um, yeah, it looked like a silver coin, and it actually was interesting. I think they replicated a uh, medieval coin or an ancient coin because um, you could see that it was imperfect. It wasn't a perfectly round shape. And you could see that at some point, people, which ha used to happen, at some point, somebody had shaved off some of the edges. <laughs> Probably to pay in things for smaller increments, and sometimes that's what people would do. Oh, that's really cool. So it's kind of more about the material cost. Yeah, so if you had a gold coin, that's probably how you could pay for things, is like just taking a chisel or some kind of sharp, sharp probably a dagger, like everybody has a dagger on them, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just like shave off a piece of it and gold is such a soft metal and so is silver so you could do that pretty easily and um just pay for things that way yeah the dagger helps you defend the gold and it helps you use the gold <laughs> <laughs> a great utility piece a great tool and um it helps you eat <laughs> yeah it's true you could carve up your roast duck Mm -hmm. I I I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I still think that Will is grossly exaggerating how far a thousand gold will get him, even for that time period. You know, it might be nice to see how accurate that statement was by having a frame of reference in like a city seeing them buy something or even a town seeing some exchange of goods and seeing how that works but we don't get to see any towns or any cities in fact the only pieces of society we get to see are a shack in the mountains and a rundown keep that will goes to aside from that the world is an enigma yeah and then between that it you do see roads so we know there are roads connecting different hamlets and towns and cities. And we see fields where people are keeping cattle. So we know there are other farmsteads and uh, shepherds and stuff. Uh, but it's so deep in the country, we never get to see even a small town. And you're right, it would have been nice to see them go to a local market for one scene or something, you know? It's true. Uh, and he... I was so shocked when he's going to the keep for the first time. He crosses a stone bridge. I was just like, 
thrown through a mental loop because up in the mountains, he lives such a kind of down and dirty lifestyle. And it doesn't seem technologically like they're at a place where they could have those sort of nice bridges or keeps. Yeah. So, of course, that had something to do with class struggle. More later on that. But it was kind of interesting to see that there is infrastructure set up, but we never get a glimpse of that. The same, the cast is so small for the film that at one point we see some peasants that Will passes on the road. And they're just like, you know, ranchers, farmers, shoveling shit covered in dirt. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's just the way things were back then, right? Exactly. <laughs> he also runs into a woman repairing a wall, and he helps her fix it, right? And then he leaves going the opposite direction. But what happens pretty shortly after, when he gets to the Baron's Keep, is he sees the girl who he helped repair the wall somehow got back to this keep before he did, even though he left her to her work and yeah. walked in a straight line. Somehow she finished her job and got there before him. And so that character he met out and about in the world is related to the place he's going. And then you see that when he gets a place to stay the night in the stables, the three farmers he met are staying in there. And I'm just thinking to myself, is there anybody in the world that isn't right there? You know? Yeah. Like, in this keep that he's staying, is that the population of the planet right there? Those, like, six or seven people. I think it is. Yeah. That, that's the impression that I got. Because they keep referencing all this other stuff, but we only ever get to see the same few characters throughout the film. Yeah, I'm, there's like a few guards and, and like shite shovelers and kind of like retainers, and that's about it. One thing I think the movie did do pretty well was I like how it kind of tried to stand up for one of the themes that was kind of like what it means to be chivalrous or honorable. Yeah. Like, Will has this idea in his mind what it means to be a knight, and he was always training with his father using wooden swords, and his father, in sparring matches, would kind of kick him around and punch him every once in a while. Just to keep him on his toes. Yeah. And then Will, in one line, was like, well, that wasn't fair, and his dad was like, don't expect your opponents to fight fair. Right. And then yeah. later when he's fighting Rogan, he has to learn that same lesson again, huh? Yeah, exactly. But that shows that Will is the kind of guy that does want to follow that kind of chivalrous code. He has like his law that he likes to stick to, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, well, you know what? That leads into another theme that I saw and which places people like him that have an honorable code above knights and they're called paladins in this setting that oh so they have to be lawful good they uh get the power of their god channeled through their divine blows something like that um but it goes along with the theme of uh the righteous fighting against the wicked and all of the literal and implied dialogue pointed to 
the idea that the paladins are dragon slayers and they're kind of above knights because they follow a stricter code of truth and honor and they aren't simply martial warriors. They have faith which guides them but also empowers all of their other abilities. Like a paladin. Yeah. So they're kind of like holy warriors uh, who have the gift of belief. Yeah, which was a little ironic because when they caught Kate using the same magic that the paladins use, Rogan accused her of being a witch and using witchcraft. But then when a knight uses it, It's like this super good holy magic, which I thought was an interesting kind of lore double standard. Were the paladins able to use magic like Kate did? Yes, um, it's a form of conjuring with belief. A conjuring, which was something they called magic in this setting, is also based on belief. But it seems to be like a double standard, like Jack said. If you are conjuring without the proper sanctions like being a knight or being a man yeah then you're uh, operating outside of socially accepted norms so that you could be condemned for your actions right like kate was like jack was talking about well when will she taught will how to use conjuring through belief it was kind of a righteous act and placed him as better than other warriors because of the strength of his belief. And he was able to fight against dragon fire and be whole. He was not injured. Yeah, I mean, the other interesting part about the magic that Will is able to call upon is this tapestry that he's given by his friend Crow that is inscribed with all these runes. And Crow says that they are the prayers to a thousand gods. And that seems to be kind of like Will's divine focus or his like holy relic, basically, that allows him to kind of channel his faith and use this protective aura that he seems to be able to conjure up. Yeah, so people can connect to magic or conjuring in this setting through the elements. So we see uh, fire and earth elements being used in conjuring in this one and kind of spirit which is what belief is standing for so there's a fifth element spirit that you can call upon no chelsea the fifth element's love i saw that movie uh so we did see three i guess different types of conjuring in this movie which was interesting yeah the fire magic that crow has seems to be like a form of divination the earth magic of Kate seems to be, there It does seem to be a divinatory element to it, but it also allows her to channel like protective shields, which she uses to save Will when the dragon tries to uh, slow roast him, or I guess flash fry. Yeah. Um, and then Faith is the wild card. Yeah. So the other part of this theme is the wicked element. And... The dragon is the ultimate embodiment of wickedness. It is kind of a mindless brute that commits destructive acts seemingly at random. 
It's something that cannot be controlled or predicted. And it's a force of nature. Yeah. So it kind of sets up nature as something to be fought against. But I saw that there are foibles in man that are can be connected to this idea of the wicked dragon, uh, such as what was exemplified in the character Rogan. So corruption and greed. So uh, Baron Sterling was also kind of somebody who is an example of this wickedness that the dragon symbolizes. So Baron Sterling is greedy, trying to withhold his responsibility to Will and his promise and keep the lands and the money for himself and withhold training and knowledge of another social class. And Rogan is trying to control the aristocracy and the knightly class through politics and kind of making underhanded deals with other lesser nobles. Yeah, I mean, the juxtaposition between Rogan and Baron Sterling is interesting because Baron Sterling is clearly a flawed man. As we get his backstory, we find out that he's been kind of conniving and duplicitous in the past, especially when it was in regard to, um, like, Will's mother, right, who he had a former relationship with. Yes. But he also is somebody who has a modicum of compassion for other people, or at least, like, I mean, they say that when his when his wife died, he was really heartbroken, right? And, like, the only thing that could console him was Kate. When when they brought Kate, who whose mother died in childbirth, to Sterling, it, like, was the thing that kept him from completely losing it. So, like, he does have this compassion for his daughter, but it's also tempered in, like, his horrendous behavior and incredibly troubling actions towards Will and Kate throughout the film. But the movie is kind of setting us up with a slightly sympathetic view of Sterling, just knowing that he is someone who is clearly very sensitive, who is a lord in decline, who is kind of posturing to impress Rogan and to probably find his way in back into the king's good graces. Yeah. But it's obviously, in the end, a very self-defeating set of behaviors that loses him his daughter and probably in the long run like more or less everything he has is going to be lost because now he doesn't have an heir to pass his kingdom on to i mean you know from within the perspective of like this medieval set of values he will have nothing left once his daughter leaves him and he his loses his kingdom and everything yeah you know this whole talk of appealing to a king with lordship and kind of trying to vie with the nobility and these knights and being a peasant, it all sounds kind of like like a class system, if you ask me. Yeah, you think so? I, I was wondering if there was, like, subtle class commentary in this movie. <laughs> it's just a little flavor, a little essence, you know? Well, you know, while we're talking about class and the struggle that is inherent between different classes, why don't we talk a little bit about class struggle? 
<laughs> Who could have seen this sudden but inevitable twist? <laughs> so, throughout the movie, Will is talked down to as a Highlander. As mm-hmm. somebody who comes from this other place, the Highlands, rough terrain, inhospitable, distant and removed from quote-unquote civilization. Even when he comes into town for the first time, even the other peasants, people who are in probably his same exact class, who might even have less autonomy because they are living under a much more direct rule, think of themselves as better than him and mock him and call, call him lesser than because of his origins in this other region. And when he fights back against Rogan and refuses to kowtow to Rogan, Sterling tells him to mind his tongue in front of his betters. Yeah. They even have a slur against the Highlanders, don't they? What is it, a jeb or something? Yeah, something like that. They keep calling him a jeb or something like that. I'm assuming that is connected to Jeb Bush, (laughs) a failed presidential (laughs) candidate. But this movie is from 2011. But, you know, this was, yeah. This was after the the Bush Jr. uh, presidency, so it must be related to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, throughout the movie, Will is talked down to not just for being a poor peasant, but for being a poor peasant from an especially reviled area. So even the other people who share his class feel that their discrimination against him is justified because he comes from another place and he's probably here to steal their work. Now, how often have we heard this old gem in our own society? Yeah. One of the reasons the Highlanders might be so disliked could be because the peasants serve under a lord, so they have some sort of identity or like a clan or a group to associate themselves with and think, at least I'm a part of something. And the Highlanders might be from a lordless area, so they could be just like, outsiders even in their own you know kingdom because they have no community to be a part of exactly and we see like it seems like will's community is himself his father and crow and that's about it now this is juxtaposed in the film and the film is clearly making a statement that rejects this concept of class though because Even though I have issues with Richard McWilliams' portrayal of Will as what I wrote in my notes as a mopey (laughs) fuckboy, he is positioned as this audience perspective character that we are supposed to see a inherent nobility in his actions, wherein he lacks the nobility of title. (laughs) Will wants to fight honorably. He wants to live in this presumed proud tradition of the paladins. He wants to ascend from this lowly class that he was born into, and he wants his actions to be more important than what is rightfully owed to him or his position in the community. He wants to act in a way that sets him apart from the class system that he's surrounded by. So we see this when we find out that Will is actually entitled to land through his father's bravery. Right. He, his father wasn't born to any wealth, but he did a heroic act for Sterling and became entitled to something that he decided that he would wait on and possibly pass on to his own child, possibly, you know, 
clearly to lift his son out of poverty, but also to have Will have to like see the other side of life and to work hard and to not become a cynical or despised Lord like Sterling clearly is because Sterling's men, the other peasants who seem to work for him don't have any love for Sterling. They're vying for his good graces, but it, the impression we get is that they would happily betray Sterling in a heartbeat if it would elevate their own positions. But Will genuinely seems to care about doing the right thing. Yeah. So this character who is born into poverty is actually the one who has the moral high ground in the cinematic language that we see throughout the movie. But he's still a mopey fuckboy in the movie, <laughs> in the film, unfortunately. It's just, I don't love the portrayal of the character. There was a theme that I picked up on that was related to class struggle. Uh, and that was the theme of female leadership that we got to see. Oh, I am so excited to talk about this. Yeah, so women can have a certain status in society, but they have limited power, limited power and possibly to no power. But the women of this film... All two of them. Yeah, were taking power for themselves. They empowered themselves either when they were out of the gaze of the men in their lives that were controlling them or through just weathering the test of time. So Kate, the love interest and daughter to Baron Sterling, empowers herself out of her father's gaze. She teaches herself conjuring. She knows how to read and write. She is a lady, so she has been taught some basic skills in terms of skills that would require one's intelligence. But she teaches herself other things like conjuring and how to be a steward for the land on her own uh, while her father is content to wallow in his own depression at home. Yeah, Sterling mostly seems to spend his time looking at like a chess set with dragon pieces, but not having anyone to play it with. Yeah. Which is just sad because I don't think solo games existed back at this point. While the other female character we get to see, Lady Sprig, who oh, is... One of my favorite characters in the whole movie. Yeah, who is... All, out of all five of them. Who is Kate's aunt and Baron Sterling's sister. She lives at the keep with them, or at the manor with them, and we kind of get the impression through dialogue throughout the film that she's a widow. Her She's been married. She's kind of had to, you know kowtow to a husband in the past but she's a lady of standing in her own right at this point later in life and she has her own station and title and that comes with a certain amount of power however limited and she accepts that role and seizes what power she can and she has decided that she is not going to take any more shit from her brother yeah so the way that we see them each use their levels of empowerment is really interesting. So Kate uses her power when her father is not around to stop her. <laughs> and she just takes it upon herself to take whatever time for herself that she can and to help others. So 
what we see is she's educating Will. She's taking it upon herself to honor her father's commitments and the responsibility to this vassal. To teach him about reading and writing and about being a knight and about courtly love. She's also doing, like, civil work around the community. She's rebuilding walls. So we see with female leadership a responsibility to the land and one's followers in that. And empowering others. We see in this movie female leadership is about empowering others by giving them the tools they need to succeed in life. And we see that with Lady Sprig as well. She also helps Will later by giving him the sword he needs to go fight the dragon. She gives each of them little tips they need to follow each other or to kind of strengthen their bond. I'm, when I say they, I mean Will and Kate. When they're having a little bit of a tiff, Lady Sprig is there to play a mediator. And you know what? They do have solo games in this setting because she's playing solitaire or some similar card game. That's true. In most of the scenes where she's in her parlor. So we we also see this idea of empowering others reflected in Lady Sprig, but also female leaders. We see a, another characteristic is that of truth speakers in Lady Sprig. She does not hold back from the truth. And she tells everyone her opinion and puts their lives into perspective for them so that it can help them understand where others are coming from and to enlighten everyone about the context of a situation. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like Lady Spriggs has the best arc in this movie, the only arc in this movie. I mean, Will knows what he wants and is working towards it. Kate wants some autonomy and she has the arc to get to it. But like both of those are kind of point A to point B. Spriggs has an interesting kind of back and forth where when we first meet her, she kind of appears out of nowhere and it seems like there was maybe a cut scene that introduced her or something. Then we see her with Rogan, and she really just wants to be entertained. She's content to say, oh, I, I want to see some knightly battles, right? Like, she wants to see Rogan and Will throw down and, like, probably get a little bit of eye candy while they're wrestling in the mud or something. And she's kind of condescending towards Will at this point, but kind of over the course of their relationship... She starts to grow fond of Will and less fond of Rogan. And we start to see her taking little subtle sniping jabs at Rogan and Sterling. And then eventually, like Chelsea said, actually give Will the sword and armor that he needs to fight against the dragon. Yeah, it's true. When they first meet with Rogan and Will at dinner, well, she's the one who recommends that they give Will a chance to prove himself by having a competition against Rogan. It's her idea to give him a shot because she kind of takes a measure of his character right before then. And maybe that is supposed to be an indication that she too is not concerned with class and titles because she doesn't care that a knight is supposed to only fight other knights. She, she sees, or that she sees a nobility in Will 
that the others have probably missed. And she wants to give him the chance to let that shine through. So that kind of speaks to this idea that female leadership comes from a power within rather than power granted to you from an outside source. And it's a power that women seem to be able to freely share with others by empowering them to have the tools they need to succeed in life and be fulfilled themselves. A more egalitarian power structure to juxtapose the hierarchical systems that men are concerned with in, you know, within the story of this film and possibly with some parallels in real life. Yes. So it kind of gives us a glimpse of what the world would be like if we had more women in positions of power. Also, the dragon was a strong woman. That's true. The dragon was female. And I think a victim of the same systems that left Kate and Spriggs in their kind of tenuous social positions. Like, Like we said, the dragon kind of represents a natural power, a chaotic an unpredictable one, but, you know, one that was mostly concerned with protecting itself. I mean, the dragon had eggs, implying parenthood. It was probably trying to protect itself from these fucking humans who were always coming trying to steal her eggs for profit. Yeah. Terrorizing her home. So, yeah, she's going to fight back. She's clearly not attacking for a food source because she eats sheep. Yeah. She kills Will's father because Will's father tries to kill her. And when someone tries to kill you, you try to kill them right back. She sees them as a threat. This is reminding me of a theme in one of the Witcher episodes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Where they go after the dragon and we find out it's... Oh, oh, spoilers. (laughs) It does seem like an interesting theme that's been happening in a, a lot of fantasy mediums the last few years this idea that like oh dragons aren't they nearly extinct in dawn of the dragon slayer in age of the dragon in the witcher you know in dragon heart they're all like aren't dragons like a thing of the past game of thrones i assume yeah it's true are there there only three dragons i don't i don't watch that no you're right it makes me wonder like I want to see a snapshot from a few hundred years ago where everyone was like, fuck, there's a lot of dragons. (laughs) (laughs) That would be, oh man, that's the movie we should write. Fuck, there's a lot of dragons. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's our rewriting history. Maybe we need to do the prequel to this, which is like an actual Age of Dragons, unlike that movie Age of Dragons with only one dragon. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking to myself, looking at these very (laughs) large magic fire-breathing creatures, right, that are very territorial, even if dragons were thriving all across the world, I don't think there would be more than one of them per, like, 50-mile range. Yeah, the the carrying capacity of the land for dragons has got to be a very low population density. I'm pretty sure you could ha- just be in an age of dragons or a dawn of dragons even <laughs> and just be like, oh, there's a dragon here. That's really unlucky. <laughs> Maybe that's why there's so few people in this kingdom. Yeah. Maybe a hundred years ago, there was just lousy with dragons 
only a few people survived. And then the dragon starved to death because they didn't have many sheep or humans to feed on. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like, maybe this is a post-apocalyptic world that we're seeing in this movie. Oh, so it's in the future, not the past. Or it's in the past, but like after a dragon apocalypse. Okay. Well, it is kind of after um, something of an apocalypse because this is, uh, there are several mentions to this being after the plague. Oh, good point. Maybe it was a plague of dragons. And that's that's why when Kate's mother died was she she got the plague. Yeah. She died of natural causes. The dragon plague. <laughs> By the way, uh Dragon Apocalypse is definitely the name of my next heavy metal album. So before we move on, and since we've talked a little bit about class struggle and all that, I want to just point out one other message that the film sends to the viewer through the dialogue. And it was a a line that I really liked that stood out to me. And it's something that Sterling says when they're talking about politics, because Sterling at his heart seems like he's got a warrior spirit. Like when the dragon comes to town, he wants to go out. He wants to go to the Knights council because I think he wants to see some action. He doesn't like the, the posturing and everything. And when he's talking about politics, he refers to it as all talk and posturing with no real purpose, right? He is this disdain for kind of idle chatter. He wants to be in the thick of things, even though he's in an an advanced age. I mean, I'm guessing for this time period, probably like late 30s, you know, practically dead. Yeah. But he's like still ready to go out and fight dragons when the opportunity arises because he doesn't like all this jaw jacking and jabbering he wants to go where the action is. Yeah. So I thought that this the the stance that this movie takes against the political system is interesting, given that these characters do run this gamut of low to upper class at a time period where those were kind of the only existent positions you could be. But even the quote unquote upper class characters like Sterling are these lords in decline. Rogan is the closest thing we have to, like, somebody who's actually doing pretty good. And he's a shithead who gets stabbed in the back for being a dick. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue to the next section. Great. So let's go to evil, stupid, or misunderstood. Welcome to Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the show where we take a look at the principal antagonist of the movie and determine if they were stupid, or maybe they're evil, or are they just misunderstood? Well, we'll find out in a minute. So guys, I'm hesitant to call the dragon the actual antagonist of this movie. Obviously Will, because he's a mopey (laughs) fuckboy. Or Rogan, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say that um, I I don't think the dragon is necessarily the villain of this film either. Like we pointed out, they're more like a, a natural force that must be contended with. The true villains of this film are the people in positions of power that don't honor their commitments and who actively try to keep others 
beneath them. So that I would say that both Baron Sterling and Rogan are two different types of villains that we see in this film. I think that uh, Rogan is pretty corrupt and greedy and entitled. He, he wants thinks... to marry Kate against her consent with, without any input from her. He says he's going to tame her. And he's the one who suggests that Sterling not tell Will about the contract that he had with Will's father that gave Will land. Right. He is the mastermind behind all the dirty dealings in this movie. Yeah. And he even tells Sterling that he wants to take those lands for himself. And I don't know if we've mentioned this, but he also is the one who blackmails the dragon to get Sterling to try to kill it. He has one of the peasants kill one of Sterling's horses and then blames it on the dragon. Oh, that's right. To kind of force Sterling into action. So the dragon is an innocent victim of Rogan's machination. A scapegoat. A scape dragon. <laughs> he e she eats the scapegoats. Right. Yeah, so I think he's pretty evil. He's knowingly trying to thwart other people's plans and take what is owed to others for himself. He's actively trying to work against the best interests of others and keep people in subjugation or in servile roles. Yeah, if I was going to write a villain, say, for my Dungeons & Dragons campaign, I would probably have him be very much like uh, Rogan. That's not true. I prefer more nuanced and subtle villains. But yeah. I could see a good case for a big, bad, evil guy, much like Rogan. I'm going to have to agree. Yeah, Rogan just seems pretty evil. I don't think there's any nuance to him. When it comes to Sterling, uh, he is, I think, maybe 50-50 misunderstood and evil. Perhaps instead of evil, you could do stupid. Because he's sympathetic after he's kind of called out and you kind of get into his head. So maybe he's stupid because it seems like he made a few wrong decisions, acted on his impulses a bit poorly. So misunderstood and stupid, I could actually see pretty well. Yeah, I think Sterling lets himself be guided by his baser instincts when the reality is that he would like to see himself in a more positive light. Yeah. He wants to see himself as the hero and a man who has good standing in life and is um, doing well for himself. And he seems to want to honor his commitment to Will because he goes back on his deal with Rogan later on and does tell Will about the deed that is in Will's name. Yeah, I think his guilty conscience might be kind of rubbing up against his ambition. Mm -hmm. So I think that he's a good person at heart that is acting in evil ways and kind of realizes it later on in the film. And really, the way he drives a wedge between himself and his daughter is pretty stupid. Yeah. He's a flawed guy, but it actually makes him kind of sympathetic. So I... Good on good on them for writing that nuanced villain. Yeah. Fair. That's true. 
All right, so it sounds like Rogan, pure evil, Sterling, evil, but also a bit misunderstood. Yeah. And kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah. For being a bad dad. I mean, how much worse can you be? Yeah. That's pretty stupid. Yeah, it is. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, why don't we head to the smithy? This is the smithy, where we forge a rating for Dawn of the Dragon Slayer after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, do you want to go first? So... I think my epic moment is when Kate is teaching Will how to conjure and she's telling him to extend his feelings out to the fire and believe that he can affect it and to feel the energy flowing through him to the fire and then it bursts out in these blue flames. That was a really cool moment. I liked that. Um, and it seemed to be even stronger because the two of them were working together on it. So I liked um, the imagery of that. I would have liked to see more of that, actually. I think that was a missed opportunity for them. But anyhow, I think I'm going to give this movie 5 out of 10 swords. I think it's kind of a middle road <laughs> movie. I had fun watching it with you guys. I enjoyed the themes in the movie for the most part about, especially about female leadership. And I think we need to see more of that in movies and a way to show strength without showing violence. I, I really enjoyed that. So that's why it gets a rating as high as I gave it, but it's missing a lot of nuance of character development and the plot points don't follow a typical path. And in this case, that was a detriment to it because it got to the point where it was hard to track and follow and understand why they kept leaving and coming back to the manor so many times. It broke up the story too much, so it was hard to follow and kind of detracting from the overall story itself. So, yeah. A fair rating. Jack? It was a fair rating. For my epic moment, I guess I'll talk about early in the film when Will's dad has been incinerated. When the dragon blows him down with fire, his skeleton collapses to the ground, all the flesh instantly gone. And only a blackened skeleton remains. Will and Crow wrap the body up, and they toss it off the cliff. <laughs> it, it it was so like it was kind of graceless yeah it's very unceremonious yeah it made it stand out a lot in my mind as actually a very favorable funny moment <laughs> i was saying to chelsea and jamie it reminded me of the this bitch empty yeet moment <laughs> <laughs> And then the body's just, like, floating on the surface of the waves. And Chelsea was like, no, that's just going to wash back to shore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Jamie was like, we should have tied it to a rock or something. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> it was just pretty great that all three of us recognized that there was something wrong with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there was no weight to the bag. They didn't, like, fill it with anything to make it resemble a human body being thrown from the cliff. It would have been pretty great if they just threw, like, an empty bed sheet off. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> Goodbye, father. <laughs> flutter, flutter. <laughs> yes. Aside from that, let me give it a rating. Uh, you know, I'm gonna have to give it five broken ancestral swords out of ten. Same as you. I probably would have given this movie a four, just because, in general, I think it's all right. I would watch it again, but I'm probably not going to go out of my way to. But in a lot of ways, it was a fine fantasy movie. The reason why it got up to a five from a four was because some of the themes were so cool. The strong female characters were really awesome. The way that magic is like a belief in something nobler. I'm always a really big fan of that. Like chivalry is one of my big favorite themes for long-term listeners. You know that. And, uh, yeah, I feel like this movie had some good ideas. It just could have expanded the world a little bit and modified its pacing and cleared up some of the plot, and I think it would have been bumped up a few points. Had some better CGI. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 5 out of 10. It's it's alright. It's pretty good. What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment and rating? Oh, I'm glad you asked what my epic moment and rating are. So, I mean, there's some butt grabbing during kissing in this movie. So that was, um, I thought about that being my epic moment, but <laughs> I guess I figured I'd do something a little more substantive. I think my epic moment is when Lady Spriggs knights Will. It really comes out of nowhere. We, Like I said, we've been watching this arc of Lady Spriggs becoming more engaged in the plot, a more interesting character over this short runtime. It's only about an hour and 40 minutes, but like she rapidly became my favorite character. Yeah. And by the time that she was shit talking Rogan and Sterling standing up for Will and like revealing more of her backstory, I was like, hell yeah, this is one of the great swords and satire characters. Yeah. So when Will is like ready to set out and fight and he's got nothing to his name to do that to, Lady Spriggs is like, dude, I've got you. <laughs> gives him hit um she gives Will her husband's sword and armor and fucking knights him right there in the middle of the keep and it's like, you know I'm like a lady, right? Like I've got the power to like bestow like a title upon you basically if i want to so let's fucking do this i think she said she has the right to choose her own champions yes oh so good such an epic moment for me definitely that is like one of that might be one of my epic moments in swords and satire epic moment history that being said i'm going to give this movie four Broken ancestral swords, <laughs> half of which is lodged into a dragon's shoulder. <laughs> I agree with you guys. I Actually, the themes in this movie surprised me, and I was much more engaged than I thought I was going to be. 
but it falls short in too many areas. It's too scattered and all over the place. The back and forth between like these main characters that we're supposed to be following being strong, but also being like kind of like, I don't mean like pathetic, like, oh, they show emotion, so they're weak. That's absolutely not what I mean. It is the way that they kind of like run off and kind of disappear and hide from everyone else around them and then are like coaxed back. It just, it, it, there was a disconnect there between what I thought was these themes of empowerment and strength and some of the behaviors that the two principal characters, Kate and Will, exhibit throughout the movie. So I would have liked a little bit more consistency. I would have liked either for them to cut some of the extraneous, like, leaving and coming back scenes or to have replaced them with some more backstory and lore. Because I, I actually think that there's decent lore in these movies and kind of throughout Anne Black's movies, I think that they do a good job of like creating a world. So I'd like to live in that world a little bit more. And this movie's just a little disappointing in its kind of unambitious scope. So Four Swords, I definitely suggest people give it a watch, but it needs a little bit of work. Yeah. And I am looking forward to seeing how this might change when we watch the sequel, The Crown and the Dragon, possibly on our next episode. Ooh. But we'll see. But now that we've got our ratings out of the way, I think I hear the bounty board calling. It is an age. An age of the dawn of the dragon slayers. You stand upon the battlefield, awaiting your scaled foes. Clad in your plate mail, armed with your trusty sword, you stand upon the hilltop, waiting, waiting for the threat that is yet to come. The air around you thickens as you hear the flapping of wings, the beating of wind. And on the horizon, you see a sight that chills you to your bones. A flight of dragons forming letters in the air? Letters that say bounties? So this week, uh, our bounty sponsor is us, Swords and Satire. And by that, I mean we're asking you to head on over to Patreon if you've been enjoying our show and maybe kick us a few dollars a month to help us uh, keep the torches lit around here. Help us keep delving into the deep themes of all the movies we watch. You'll be joining the lauded ranks of our first two patrons, Mickey and Casey, who generously donate to help keep the show going. And you'll also get some really cool bonus content and extra bonus features that only patrons can get access to. That's right. Special monthly episodes, things like outtakes and other things that we're going to talk about. I'm really excited for our special episode, Which Witcher is Witchest? And whenever you become a patron, you'll be able to listen to these. But you have to be at a certain tier. <laughs> That's right. You know, a wise man once said, Eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love infinitely. 
And with this show, if you sign up on Patreon, you'll be able to laugh triple because of our three different monthly episodes. <laughs> There's going to be our bi-weekly normal updates, as well as our Can You Roleplay It? and our side episode. That's three different ways you can laugh. Live that philosophy in your own life. <laughs> nice. That seems like a smart move to me. Okay, are you guys ready to rewrite some history? Oh, yeah. Yes. Welcome to Rewriting History, where we take a look at the movie we just watched, and then we come up with ideas for a sequel, a reboot, a spinoff, or a crossover for Dawn of the Dragon Slayer, a movie that already has a sequel, so... Well, we know that Jack had some ideas, so why don't you start us off? Yes. So, guys, we know from this film, like Chelsea so wisely said, they referenced there was a plague right before this. You know what other medieval fantasy movie we watched that was enduring a plague? And we said this is kind of post-apocalypse Night, Night of, of the, the Dead. dead. Yes. Nice. Why is everyone gone? They were turned into zombies. <laughs> yes. What setting has low magic? Night of the Dead, you know? Yes. Oh my god, this is going to be a cinematic universe for sure. Yes. And so all the people are gone. There's this post-apocalypse. There were ruined castles in that movie. The landscape was roughly the same. Similar color palette. It's true. Perhaps this is sort of maybe a, a hundred, two hundred years after that's happened. Maybe a little more recently, people are just kind of recovering from it. Well, Sterling's I, wife died in the recent past of the plague. Yes. So I think it's actually closer to the like tail end of it where people are still dying. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps there's this sort of, it's like this constant problem where there are roaming bands of the undead and even if you clear one out there's another group somewhere else causing a bigger issue so it's kind of this you know thing that sticks around and so they lost a lot of knights as you remember in that plague and now they're kind of taking what they can get, and that's why the knights that are around have maybe fed into a bit more corruption. Fed. Yes. And maybe that can just be the background for this movie, and maybe we get a bit more lore for that in this film. For example, they could be going to town with all these fortifications, like Night of the Dead. There could be all the stakes outside with the, like, dead corpses on them and stuff, and they have to trade in town, and maybe they get some of their armor that resembles some of the pieces from the knights that died in the previous film. So half of the movie is a dragon revenge plot and a love story, and suddenly we get a twist halfway through where it's actually a zombie movie. Oh, and that's why the dragon was pushed into this territory, because it was fleeing the undead. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Now you guys you guys know what our final set piece battle has to be. What? Zombie dragon. Oh yeah. Yes, yes. We're getting there, baby. We're getting there. But 
Yes. So they maybe get to see these towns, these fortifications. There's reason why things are kind of in ruin. And, you know, you add a few modifications to the film, just like general aesthetic stuff. When they're kissing and he's grabbing her butt, she grabs his butt and they both start <laughs> floating in the air. Don't explain it. Move on. Very important. Yeah. Don't explain it. Just move on. And, uh... <laughs> And it was already explained in Night of the Dead that some pagan magics might actually be confirmed to work, which is why the cloth of a thousand gods, which has runes all over it, helps Will in this film. So right? uh, let me, I want to make this clear, or I want to get this straight. Is this a, a, a prequel to Dawn of the Dragon Slayer where we're like learning Sterling's story? Or is this a kind of a rewrite of this movie as a crossover to Night of the Dead. The second one. Okay. That's what I thought. Night of the Dawn of the Dragon Slayer. Exactly. <laughs> Night with a K. Yeah. But there's another layer to this. When Will is going to fight the dragon in this film, and they actually confront each other, he's like, You beast, you killed my dad. And then the dragon turns to him and says, but your dad was trying to kill me and my children. And then he's like, oh, shit, it can speak. Because you know what other movie has corrupt knights in it? Dragonheart. You remember in the second one how the knights have twisted the old code in order to manipulate the people? Rogan acts a lot like those knights does. Yes, perfect. Yeah. Excellent call. One caveat, though, or one change I want to make. Yes. Will's father killed the dragon's mother. Oh, yeah. Years oh, ago. Damn. That's why she singles out Will's father. And that's the brave act he did for Sterling. He removed the dragon from his lands, and that's why he had the deed for the land. Yes, the brave act. Yes, quote unquote. Oh my gosh, and his dad could have been, well, you assume he was a paladin when he was younger as well, d killing these dragons, and perhaps he uses the same conjuring of will to keep the undead at bay, and that's why there's such a distrust for the mountain folk, because they can avoid the undead while living in the wilderness. Very nice. And so, they, it's a superstitious distrust of them. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's kind of like a night of the dawn of the heart of the dragon slayer. <laughs> I love it. Can we work Ahab and his uh, dragon antics into this, or is that is that gilding the lily too much? We might have to work on that for the sequel. Oh, uh, good call. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just going to start mashing up every single movie that has a dragon in the title. <laughs> and it's around Christmas time. And... <laughs> <laughs> they need help. <laughs> they need a noble knight. Somebody of the of the t title of Sir Cole, perhaps. <laughs> yes, he's sent back with Mrs. Claus, and then Mrs. Claus <laughs> and starts training with Kate and training <laughs> their conjuring powers, giving the claws magic. Yes. And we find out that is Mrs. She... Claus is Kate as an older woman. Oh, no, I was going to say, <laughs> I was actually going to say that Mrs. Claus could be the water 
elementalist because snow oh! is made of water. Yes. So oh, wait, no, that means we need to cast our air elementalist. So are you mixing in the last airbender in here too? Oh God, no, I wasn't <laughs> intending to. That was not what I, damn it. I did, I, I did not mean to do that. No, uh, we really do need somebody who can control air magic though from one of our movies. Oh. Oh, it can be the, it could probably be like maybe the priest dude from Night of the Dead. But it's got to be a female character. The the Oh, oh yeah, no, that's right. not true cuz Crow in this movie with a with a fire conjurer. conjurer and he as far as I know was not a female person. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh so in air who's our air caster? And it's not Ang. Oh, it's the <laughs> drunken priest uh in Lady Hawk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's his drunken breath that he uses as his air magic. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. Lady Hawk does have knights in it. <laughs> and low magic. That's pretty good. Oh, dude. I just love the idea of, like, they, like all these, like, people who have stood up to bad knights and they're, like, the good knights trying to form this, like, this like night of the round table sort of thing what is it a wheel of cheese <laughs> that's exactly it this all ties in to creating the new knights of the round table for the guy Ritchie king arthur movies we haven't met the other knights yet that's these true. are the other knights yes <laughs> and you know they learn the old code from dragons and they're kind of fighting to stop these bad dragons you know they each have chariots of flying reindeer flying after the dragons and stuff <laughs> so wait are, are we tying in the santa from narnia oh, oh boy. Yes. or the father christmas <laughs> we're just bringing oh. everybody fucking in here <laughs> all right we're 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 uh we're jumping the gun on my idea for the 50th episode so maybe we should cut it right here <laughs> Good idea. Save some of this. Yeah, we should move on to the side quest before we spoil all my good ideas. All it's right. like the Smash Bros. Everyone is here. Yes. We've gone off the rails too much. You're trying to rein us in. That's right. Like a reindeer. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I'm ready for a side quest. <laughs> This is the side quest where we suggest another piece of fantasy media that you can check out after you've watched Dawn of the Dragon Slayer. Chelsea, what do you got for us this week? So we may have talked about it before, but I still think that the Dark Tower series would be an interesting, unexpected tie-in to this movie. I think we probably talked about that in the Dark Tower episode of Swords and Satire. Yeah. So I'm going to amend this a little bit. Eye of the Dragon. Ooh, first Stephen King book I ever started to read. Yeah, and it's definitely a fantasy novel with a tie into the Dark Tower series, as all of King's books have. And um, in that book, you have kind of the main character who's of a lower class, who's trying to make a name for themselves, and you have 
magicians who are working against the good of the realm. And you have people kind of trying to work together with imperfect information and trying to thwart the end of the world, basically, so to speak, the end of their world. And um, I think it's a great tie-in to this film. Yeah, I recommend reading The Eyes of the Dragon. I started reading it back in high school when I was less good at finishing novels. And then sometime a few years later, I actually went and read the whole thing and really enjoyed it. And it's one of the very few Stephen King books I've actually read to completion, along with the first two books in the Dark Tower series. So I suggest checking it out. Yeah, I think you'll all enjoy it. Well, on that note, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with us this week and listening as we regaled you with our thoughts on Dawn of the Dragon Slayer. As always, if you enjoyed the show and you don't mind heading on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review, it's a really great way to help people find out about our show. And more importantly than that, we believe in word of mouth advertising. So please tell your friends, tell your families, tell your enemies <laughs> about the show. <laughs> yeah. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You can head on over to Patreon and support us in that way as well. And you can send us an email if you want to ask us a question. Or a carrier pigeon if you can find out where we are. <laughs> And our email is simply swordsandsatire at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We might even read your letters on the air. And a special thanks to everyone who's been sticking around. We get more and more listeners all the time, and we're happy to have you and look forward to building a nice community. That's right. Well, then, until next time. Hail, Hail Cry! Cry!